Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nolan. I'd like to welcome you to this program. We're going to deal with a variety of issues, animal and environmental conservation, the spiritual dimensions of caring for the planet. My guest is Dr. Jane Goodall. In the animal kingdom, there are need for spokespersons for humanity, and Dr. Goodall has served that role for several decades. She's a renowned primatologist, best known for her 45 years of studying and living among the chimpanzees in Tanzania. She's an ethnologist, a conservationist, and the United Nations Messenger of Peace. She spends about 300 days a year on the road, speaking with students and children and government officials and on animal conservation issues and the threats against the chimpanzees of the National Park, which is one of the last remaining refugees on the planet. So educating young children about the importance of our neighbors in the animal kingdom has been one of her fundamental priorities for inspiring and empowering people to care and preserve the natural world for humanity and the planet's benefit. She is the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, her Roots and Shoots, a global environmental and humanitarian program to motivate young people to learn the important challenges that face the communities and to implement projects to solve them, which is a part of the Jane Goodall Institute. And she's received a lot of acknowledgement, as she well deserves, for her work, her humanitarian work, her environmental work. She was named the Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, the prestigious Kyoto Prize in Japan, the Gandhi King Award for Nonviolence, and she's written many books about her chimpanzee research and wildlife conservation and mindful eating and postmodern spirituality, including hope for animals and their world, um, and how endangered species are being rescued on the brink. Now, I'd like to welcome you to our program. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hi. I would like for you, if you would, please, to uh, share your insights in the efforts of, of all the concerned individuals in this audience to protect various species from extinction and why this is important for humanity and ecology and also the condition of our planet's environment. You know, if we hear that 12,000 children die each day, which they do from in disease and starvation, malnutrition, we hear that number and, and it doesn't resonate. If we hear one child uh, whose life is imperiled, we all are galvanized. So I'd like your position on how we can best go about challenging globalization and corporate privatization and have resources at the same time that both the Democratic and Republican parties are supporting corporate interests that are engaged in the effort to take away the force. And my first question is this. We frequently hear reports in science publications and news sites and the threat of extinction of so many different species of animals as their natural habitats are destroyed in order to reap the financial rewards of their resources. In light of this problem, which may likely not go away as the demand for these resources continues to grow, and while there are many multinational corporations eager to exploit them, how is it that you have been able to remain so hopeful? In fact, from a spiritual perspective, what are the strengths and weaknesses you've encountered in remaining full of hope in all the work that you do? Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of questions in one, but um, 
let me have a go at it. I think, first of all, how do I remain hopeful? Well, I travel the world a lot. I meet people all over the world, and everywhere I go, I meet extraordinary people, people who tackle seemingly impossible tasks and won't give in. And if you sort of, if I think back like a hundred years ago, you know, we found all Europe was uh, at each other's throats and there were long wars and there was a lot of bitterness. If you think back to the United States, there was a civil, um, a, a revolution here with a lot of bloodshed. And now the states of the United States are under one star-spangled banner. We have the European Union. So things do change. And the corporate greed that you talk of, the dark side of, of uh, globalization, is, is indeed a huge obstacle if we're talking about saving a piece of forest somewhere in Africa. And the, the, the um, country, the president, the government feels, well, they could sell that piece of land and get lots and lots of money, which very often goes into a Swiss bank account because there's a lot of corruption all over the world. But at the same time, I think the important thing is to realize that many corporations today have understood the problems that are being caused by, for example, climate change, the emission of uh, CO2 into the environment, the methane gases from intensive farming of animals, the uh, over-exploitation of groundwater for irrigation. All of these things, the, the big corporations are beginning to realize that this is devastating, that this is causing a cataclysm, and they truly are beginning to change. You know, I was just in Greenland where the ice is melting, and it was horrifying, beautiful but horrifying. And I was there with about... Uh, 25 real estate developers, very, very wealthy from North America and Europe. And they were so moved when they realized what was going on that there are written pledges to reduce their emissions by up to 60% over the next few years. So the, there is change afoot. There are people who realize that this preoccupation with materialism is simply destroying the planet. And if we care about our children and grandchildren and theirs, then we simply must realize that each one of us has got to do our bit. It may seem tiny, but if the millions and billions of people on the planet are all doing their bit, that's going to make huge change. I appreciate your insights. Thank you. Go back to Greenland for a moment. On the one hand, Greenland is an enormous body. It's three times the size of Texas. It has ice that, if that ice were to melt, could raise the sea level and which would threaten our about yeah, 265 million people. Seven meters the sea could go up if it all melted. That's over 20 feet. Could you explain what you were seeing there? Well, what I was seeing was I went up to this great cliff of ice which goes up and up and up to the ice cap that covers the whole country. And it's considerably shrunk over the last 20 years. It's much lower than it used to be. And a great river pours out of it where there never was a river at all. In fact, it never melted, even in the summer. And standing there with some of the Inuit elders who hadn't been back there since they were children, they had tears pouring down their face because as we stood there, there would be this huge crack and then a silence. 
and then a thunderous roar that reverberated as a vast slab of ice broke off and crashed down. And, uh, and then the, the river became turbulent. This ice river became turbulent with pieces of broken ice. And it really was terrifying. And to know how fast these, these great um, glaciers are moving and then fly over the sea, which used to be frozen, and to see it now covered with icebergs, and to actually land on a piece of ground which, until a few years ago, had been under the ice since the last ice age. So it's happening, and it's happening much faster than anybody predicted. And it's melting from below as well as above. I was told by a, a, an expert in the area that we're now in chaos theory. Um, this is the person that was the, the character of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, the, the, um, uh, the chaos theorist. There's actually a real person now at the University of California. And, and I asked him, I said, weren't you the experts saying that the Larson B. Shelf that is protecting the uh, glaciers in South and Antarctica would take five to 10,000 years before it would break? He said, yes. And I said, didn't it break 29 days later? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, why should we trust your judgment? He said, you shouldn't. He said, yeah, let me explain yeah. something. He said, there is no mathematical model on Earth that can accurately predict when Greenland and Antarctica will begin to shed so much ice because no one knew until recently that there were lakes inside of these, trapped inside of these giant glaciers, and these lakes will give up their water when they, the, it melts down to the lake and exposes it. And he said, we could be seeing uh, massive amounts of flooding within the next five to ten years. He said, if someone tells you, oh, you don't have to worry for a hundred years, he said, that is not a person you should trust. No, so right. I'm very concerned about what you are telling us because I've also gotten it from a lot of other people. Mm. No, it's very... I came away uh, shocked, but I came away just like all these real estate people, absolutely determined. I, I, the message that I now shall give is that each one of us must do everything we can to slow down climate change. And you know, yesterday, I wished I'd been still in the UK, I left yesterday, but they were launching their 1010. I don't know if you've heard of it, but no, it's... What um, is it? It's, it's, they, they, were all, they were getting people into pledge. They'd already got 2,000 corporations, companies, individuals, schools, universities. But in the year 2010, all these people who've signed on will, uh, or have agreed to reduce their, carbon, their, their CO2 emissions by 10%. So it's called 1010. And it's a fantastic, it's really involving people. It's, uh, it's very exciting. This includes that they will then turn around to the government and say, look, this is what all the people want. This is what all the people are doing. Now can you get, get out there and do what it is you have to do to um, control some of the emissions of big industry, for example? Are you? Thank you for sharing that with us. Are you familiar with Dr. Lovelock's work? Yes. Well, I, I filmed him recently, and in that I asked him, I said, uh, do you believe that based upon the political will of China, India, Brazil, as going to becoming the major polluters, along with the United States, that we had the political will to reduce the greenhouse emissions by 
60% minimally, 80% realistically. And he said, no, we will not be able to do that. He said, it's too late for this current uh, crisis. What we have put into the environment will stay there, and there will be a series of tippings. When they will tip will be sooner rather than later, and one tipping will affect all the others. That is, if the uh, conveyor belt that takes hot water from the south of the uh, ocean and brings it north and then brings cold water back, if that tips, then you're going to see a miniature ice age over much of Europe. He said we would have to have a radical change immediately, and he said he personally does not believe that people are willing to make the sacrifices. I countered. I said, well, look, I'm a vegan. I eat organic. I don't support multinational stores. I buy from greenhouse. I grow my own food. 90% of what I eat at the table I grow. I said, lots of people could become vegan. If we just became vegan one day a week, if we no animal proteins, no animal products one day a week, we could do more than any of the uh, effects of uh, CO2 from cars, ships, planes, and trains. And he said, you're right, but now you've got to get the people to agree that they're willing to give up their taste and their comfort in their foods. He is not positive. He did not come away in that interview giving any hope. Uh, I believe in hope. I believe that we can make positive changes. What are your thoughts on veganism as a major contribution, which would actually contribute more than 10%. It would actually contribute close to 55%, 55% of individuals, not corporations, not governments, bypassing that if we chose to go vegan. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, well, um I, I, I'm not a vegan because traveling to so many weird places in the world, it'd be very, it's very hard to be vegetarian. Um, so, yeah, if we, if we could all become total vegans, it would do exactly as you say. That would be a very hard thing to get people. One day a week, yes, maybe, uh, although and unless you cook your own meals and you can afford to get vegan meals, it's difficult. So I've taken a slightly different tack which is um, less perfect, but seems to work quite well in getting people on board. That is, first become vegetarian. And if you must eat any animal product, it must be free-range and it must be organic. Um, you know, to go back to the days when cows wandered in the fields and we just took a little from them wouldn't be such a bad thing, and it would certainly make a vast difference to the uh, methane gas that's produced at the moment. So I haven't chosen to go as, um, as radical as you because it would be difficult for me to do that, difficult for me to find the food to eat in some of these parts of the world. But the thing is, you see, that people, the average person doesn't realize, they haven't a clue that the meat they're eating is causing all this havoc. They don't understand about the effect on the environment or on human health, uh, the suffering of the animals they try to turn away from. So how to, make them, how to make them listen and understand is difficult, but it's happening. You know, that was my last book, uh, Harvest for Hope. It was all about food, and many people have become vegetarian from reading that book, and it's very successful in France, in China, um, in Korea, it's being used by university students. So I 
completely agree with you. We must be hopeful. And maybe we take smaller steps and then bigger steps. Okay, that's, I accept that. What about another small step, buying locally? Yes, oh, that's so important. You, but you see, here again, you and I are lucky. I have a, have a home. If I have a home anywhere, it's in England. I share it with my sister, and she lives there with her family, and I'm a bird of passage. We can grow quite a bit of our food in the garden because we have a garden. Um, there's an awful lot of people. If you go into the inner city uh, anywhere, or if you go into the cities, it's difficult for people to grow their own food, and sometimes it's difficult for them to afford that extra that it takes to buy organic or from the small shops. Um, so, you know, first of all, you want people to understand why they should, and second, how do we make it cheap enough for them to do it? So one of my passions is urban farming, because um, that, was, that, was, that started in Cuba after the embargo, uh, the American embargo there. And they started growing their own food in Havana, and it started feeding the starving people of the city. It's happening in other parts of the world, too, like China and India. Let me build slightly on what you just said that I support. Uh, I would like to see uh, inner-city uh, organic farming, and here's how it could be done. You could have abandoned lots, of which there are thousands in New York City. There's 60,000 abandoned buildings in New York alone. And through the city, turning those over to a foundation, you could have hundreds of community gardens with greenhouses, and the payment of that greenhouse could come from corporate sponsorship giving a $2 tax deduction for each dollar donated. Any corporation in America would love that. Right now, we don't have that. So if you're giving someone a two-to-one uh, benefit, no matter what their ultimate, art, uh, ultimate um, interest, they're going to say, hey, this is good. So corporate America pays to have these greenhouses and gardens built. Local community uh, leadership gets the people into them. Then you then have produce that can be grown 12 months a year from sprouts to microgreens to regular vegetables that are a regular support mechanism of those people's food and a cost that would dwarf even what goes into a supermarket, let alone a health food store or farmer's market. So that's one of my hopes also is to I get... I completely agree. I, I think that we should be doing this urban farming. Uh, tried to set that up in North Korea for the starving people there so they could grow some food for their, of their own even in the city. And not only that, but it brings... Um, children back in touch with nature again. They get to understand that potatoes grow in the ground and tomatoes grow on, on, a, on a stem and that they're fruits because lots of children today haven't a clue. And um, also you can get all your food composted with worms and create fantastic fertilizer and grow your food even better and not have the waste. Have you been in India or England recently? Uh, excuse me, India or China recently? Yes, well, last year. Okay. Those are two of the problematic countries, both because of the amount of uh, pollution that they give off, the amount of starving people and poor they have, and also the middle class and upper middle class's ravenous appetite for everything Western, including uh, pork and animal proteins and other foods. What would be your suggestion for these two countries to help in their future development? Well, what I'm trying to do, we have this program for young people called Roots and Shoots, 
um, which has now been going since 91. It's now in 111 countries. It's involving young people of all ages who themselves, um, each group, chooses three kinds of projects to make the world better. First of all, for their own community and then reaching out to other communities. Second, for animals, including domestic animals. And thirdly, for the environment that we all share. So in China now, we have four offices, all run by Chinese. We've got about, I don't know, 600 active groups across China. Um, we could grow even more if we had more money, but we have to service these groups. Um, the same program is growing. It's begun, and I think it will spread quite fast in, in India. And we're just about to launch it. Well, I hope we are in Brazil, because we, the Jane Goodall Institute, don't have the funds to go and launch a program. So what, what happens is that as I'm traveling around the world like this, I find somebody who gets it and says, yes, I'm going to champion this. I think it's going to work. We need this in India, China, Australia, where have you. And then if the moment is right and the person is right, it takes off. And it's honestly changing the world. It really is making a huge difference. So my answer to China or India is get more and more youth involved, particularly at the university level. And um, the, even the young children are influencing their parents and their grandparents. And since I first went to China about 13 years ago, there's an enormous change. I know that the, the demand for raw materials has gone way up, skyrocketing in a very unsustainable way. But too, the awareness of the problems has grown. And the young people are very, very aware of and concerned by what's happening, and they want to change. I appreciate these insights because most people are not aware of the efforts being made and that they're grassroots movements in every one of these countries. Now, I feel our postmodern infatuation with gadgetry, the high-tech, the concrete jungle of consumerism, it's my personal belief that it divorces people from their connection to nature and somehow citizens of the industrial world psychologically remove themselves from the fabric of life, thereby distancing themselves from other life forms and animals as something other, something removed from their daily lives. What are people missing by holding that view, consciously or unconsciously? And what have, what have been the consequences of us separating ourselves from our natural origins in the community of uh, sentient life? On the planet. Well, I think uh, very, uh, very, very drastic. This separation from the natural world uh, is uh, well. First of all, psycho psychologists have shown that young children to grow psychologically healthy need need nature. They need you know grass and birds and sky and flowers and things like that. And there was an experiment done in Chicago where they took two areas of high crime, about the same, in inner city areas. And one they greened, they put, um, they, they did, they made gardens in the empty lots, they put window boxes, they got trees into the streets, and the other they left. And the level of crime dropped really substantially, I forget the percentage, in the place that was green. So we need it for our psychological well-being. And... Really, if you don't understand something, how can you care? And when kids grow up, as so many do, um, either from choice or because there's nothing else to do, in a world of virtual reality, glued to 
to the uh, video monitors, the, the games, uh, whatever it is, um, and, and their Blackberries and their cell phones and all these things which divorce them from nature, they, they don't understand nature. And even if they like to go and look at um, movies about nature, it's not at all the same to look at something on a screen as to actually experience it. And I mean, I know that. Like I just said, I went to Greenland. I knew intellectually what was happening there. But to actually stand there with all this raw, majestic beauty and fear was something completely different. Hmm. It is my personal view that the environmental threat to biodiversity and other animals is a spiritual crisis. What are your thoughts on the connection drawn between an environmentally oriented consciousness and a spiritually directed consciousness? Well, I, th I think so, yes. I mean, I think that our material society has uh, been crushing out the spiritual aspect of, of us humans. One of the things that, that um, could really lead us into a glorious future if we allow it to develop. And I think that this materialist materialistic culture is actually, um, it, it seems to me to be making people very dissatisfied. They can't find a meaning in their life. And I think that's why these weird cults start up, because people, they're desperate for something. And, you know, so many people have turned their back on any kind of organized religion. And so then they're left with nothing at all, except buying stuff and collecting stuff and getting more and more stuff that they don't either want or need, whereas the other three quarters of the planet has nothing. Um, so the, the nature, spirituality, to me, is all interconnected, and I certainly feel that personally from spending uh, months and months and months on my own in the forest and feeling very close to a great spiritual power. Hmm. I assume you're familiar with the work of Rich Love, his book, The Last Child in the Forest? Yes. And his uh, description of a condition he calls nature def deficit disorder, when mm -hmm. children have no connection to the natural world because they've been so urbanized or technized. Yep. Now, in your own work with children, as you've mentioned, both developed and developing world, have you noted any fundamental differences in children's development between those who live closer to nature and those who are completely alienated, aside from the reference you gave us in Chicago? Well, yes. I mean, I think it's hard to pinpoint what's causing these differences because, you know, the way of learning, like children learning through a computer and websites learn quicker but apparently less deeply so that they tend to forget it. Uh, they tend to think differently, and they seem to have much shorter attention spans. They want instant gratification. And then, of course, at the same time, they're in, a, in, in our world, they're in a society where if something seems to be wrong, they're given medications. So we're seeing all these, these terrible, you know, childhood rock, skyrocketing examples of autism and attention deficit and, and all these other things. And you don't find any of that if you go out, say, into the rural part of Tanzania or into the Congo jungles with the pygmies. People don't live that way, and they seem much more whole. And, okay, they, they may not have academic learning, but they're certainly learning how to live and how to be decent human beings, which surely is part of 
what it's all about. I have one final question for you, and I appreciate the time you've shared with us. Africa is surely the continent that you have a great affinity for since you spent so much of your life there. And I'd like to hear your views about how prepared Africa is for many of the forecasts, especially from various UN agencies that address a predicted crisis due to climate change. And we're talking about over, well, the largest single group of people in the world as far as affected by starvation, uh, unrelenting drought, et cetera, and uh, uh, the lack of water. And, and one final note on that. I recently saw a film called The Cove. Are you familiar with that? No. It, it was about the dolphin slaughter in Japan in oh, a yeah. bay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could hear someone talk about it, but until you see those dolphins that live in families and are highly intelligent and very mm-hmm. evolved, you could see them being slaughtered. It just it just devastates you emotionally to watch this and know that the Japanese government was complicit and and there was no the media did not cover it at all. Yeah. And how difficult it is at times to get entire cultures to be aware that they have to resensitize themselves to creatures that otherwise they they are not just insensitive to, but allow this kind of slaughtering of them. And I know that's gone on in Africa, too, and we haven't been there to see the slaughter of the rhino, the hippo, the great apes, the chimpanzees. So could you take us on that little journey also to give us a perspective we don't have? Well, I think, you know, the perspective is, let's if we take Gombe National Park, where where the chimpanzees are, that we're actually coming up to our 50th year of study next year. Not me. I'm not there at all full-time anymore. I'm only there twice a year briefly, and it's been that way now since 1986. But um, in the early 90s, I flew over this whole area in a plane, a small aircraft. And although I knew there was deforestation outside the park, I had absolutely no idea that it was virtually total. There were more people living there than the land could support. Uh, They were... uh, they, they had degraded their farmland. There was terrible erosion. They were obviously struggling to survive. So the question came up, and this applies to all wilderness areas right across Africa or anywhere else in a poor country, uh, that how could we even try to save these famous chimpanzees if the people living around were um, starving and struggling? So we started a program called Take Care, which is now one of the most successful of its kind. It's very holistic. It's uh, improving the lives of the people in now 24 villages. We're about to expand hugely um, in a very um, holistic way, everything from uh, growing their food in a sustainable way, restoring fertility to overused farmland, tree nurseries, fast-growing species for building poles and firewood, uh, microcredit loans for women, which I think are tremendously important, um, scholarships for girls, emphasis on women, because all around the world, as women's education improves, family size tends to drop, and this is desperately important in many parts of the world, including including the developed world as well, some parts. And this program is so successful that now the villagers appreciate it, they realize that their own water supply is now improving because they're managing it better. They're protecting the forests along the watersheds, for example. 
Um, it's pure water. It's clean water. And so now they're allowing the land around Gombe to regenerate, and it's very resilient, and it regenerates fast. So now the Gombe chimpanzees have a buffer between them and the villagers and an opportunity for interaction with other remnant chimp groups, which is their only chance for long-term survival. So it, it's a very clear, it, it's perhaps not exactly the answer you wanted from me, but I think it's important to share that poverty is one of the worst destroyers of the environment. Poverty on the one hand, overconsumption on the other. And we in the developed world can deal with our overconsumption by just taking a firm grip on ourselves and saying, as a, an old wise Indian once said, I ask myself every time I think of getting something new, can I live without it? If we start thinking like that, if we start thinking about how our actions today will affect our children and their children, and if we then realize that you know, extreme poverty must be alleviated if we can hope to protect the environment in the developing countries. So that's, that, that's more of an overview than you were looking for. But the people actually, you know, we have chimp orphan, we have sanctuaries for orphan chimps. And the local people make the most amazing keepers. They have a real affinity uh, with chimpanzees, with monkeys, with whatever's in the sanctuary. And the local people come to visit. And they go away saying, I'll never eat another chimpanzee again. I didn't realize they were like us. I've never seen a monkey close up. I've been fascinated to watch this hippo mother and her baby. So we have to realize that they need exposure to it. They need to understand before they can care. That, that is more than the answer I was expecting. I thank you very much for being on with us today, and, and uh, we will do all we can to support your efforts. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Jane Goodall, my guest, Conversations with Remarkable Minds.